that talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to, what is it, Wednesday? Wednesday, it's the Wednesday Buckeye Talk. It's weird when the game's on a Friday. It throws off your whole week. Doug Maurice, Nathan Baird, Stephen Means, Nathan and Stephen heading to New Orleans soon. We're going to talk about... What we learned Tuesday during interviews with the Clemson offensive guys and the Ohio State defensive guys, you can get all this information in your phone right early, very quickly, right as it happens even. Nathan's firing away with what these guys are saying. 614-350-3315. Try it now. It's like a couple, get a couple free days before the playoffs. See what happens. 14-day free trial, 614-350-3315. I want to start with recruiting as we talk about this matchup. Because Kerry Combs was asked about this, Stephen, and was talking about how much Ohio State and Clemson do wind up cross, crossing paths on the recruiting trail. And I was trying to think about it. And if Ohio State just recruits differently than everybody else in the Big Ten, that they're just after guys that other Big Ten teams aren't in on. And if you believe to some degree that the SEC is kind of a different animal, maybe that's not fair. Certainly Ohio State does go up against Alabama and LSU um, for top guys. We know that J.C. Latham wound up at Alabama or Ohio State recruited him hard. But I kind of wondered if it's like, okay, well, the Big Ten people aren't really Ohio State's competition. And if the SEC is kind of the SEC, like who else is there? Well, there's Clemson. So it would make sense to me, Stephen, that maybe this really not only is Ohio State's main competition on the field the last couple of years, but now that Clemson has raised its recruiting game, and that's a big change from a couple of years ago, you know, 2016 when we're covering this game, it's like, man, look at Clemson. They're developing a lot of lower-ranked guys. Clemson gets like the number five class, the number eight class, the number nine class, but they still are competing for titles. They've raised their recruiting game. So is this now the number one recruiting competition for Ohio State? Is it Clemson, Stephen? In, in a way, it is. I, that starts with Jordan Hancock, who was committed to Clemson after the spring and then flipped to Ohio State later in the summer and obviously ended up signing with, with, with Ohio State. It kind of starts there with that really being Ohio State's first major win, major win in that battle. Because before that, you've seen Jackson, Com- Carmen, you know, Brock, the two offensive linemen from Ohio go to Clemson. They've got another offensive lineman going to Clemson from Ohio in 2022. You've seen Clemson kind of come up to Ohio and raid some guys across the recruiting scale, not just five stars, but some lower four-star top 200 guys as well. And so Ohio State getting that first major win, that's a big deal for Ohio State. But also in 2022, they have 22 guys who are non-committed in common that they both have already offered. At the top of that list is obviously some top five players in the country like Walter Nolan, uh, Damani Jackson, who probably everybody's going after, but also some of these lower guys like Xavier and the Xavier Napaka from Iowa, that's a guy who's crystal balled to Ohio State, but is very high on Clemson as well. And right now, there's Ohio State's won one ba- two battles with Caleb Burton and Desan McCullough, while Clemson's won Blake Miller. So there is a growing list of guys in common. And a lot of that is, if you look at their classes, they're a little similar. There's like this chunk of five stars, and then everybody else is kind of in the top fifth, anywhere from 50 to 250 range and then there's some more developmental guys at the bottom that they kind of close out their classes with so they recruit the same but they also are going after the exact same guys to get that same philosophy but they also clemson certainly has been up in the midwest it feels like Mm -hmm. a little bit more 
than some of the SEC teams. I mean, Jackson Carmen, the big example, but they have a couple guys that are Ohio guys that are down there. That, that, that doesn't surprise me. When, if Alabama or LSU or somebody like that is up here chasing after a bunch of Midwestern guys, that's a little bit of a surprise to me. It, it doesn't feel like a surprise with Clemson anymore. And then Ohio State is often in Virginia. Ohio State's in Georgia. That's a lot of that's a lot of a lot of the same areas that Clemson's in. It just feels like geographically they kind of are on the same guys. And then again, they're both, you know, Steven, they're both out in California getting some guys that just like Ohio State has taken advantage of the downturn of the Pac-12. Clemson clearly in more recent in that last year or two, Clemson's done that as well. So geographically, it feels like they're a little bit of a match. Yeah, what's interesting, let's just be honest, what's Ohio State do? They go places where the program is probably down and they go raid their, their top prospects. It seems like Clemson is doing the exact thing, except they're trading them. You know, Clemson's coming in the Big Ten territory and going everywhere, but obviously Jackson Carmen's the, the, you know, exclude him from that, but they're going to, you know, the Michigans, the Indianas, places like that to find prospects, but at the same time, Ohio State's going into the ACC territory everywhere around Clemson and kind of doing the same thing. So they're doing, you know, they're both taking advantage of the fact that there's them and then there's everybody else in their conference who's not nearly on the same level. So you're able to raid those places for talent. Nathan, when you just think about the programs, how they're perceived, the people who are there, does it make sense to you that that these two programs might both appeal to the same type of players? You know what I mean? It does a little bit. And I think, you know, Clemson wasn't it wasn't that long ago that Clemson was trying to do what Ohio State is trying to do right now still as far as like be that team that, that scratches and claws and gets up to that upper level. It's just that they got there first. So it may I, I think they both were kind of starting if you go back several years kind of from that same starting point in some ways uh, you could say. Ohio State was even ahead because they got to that national championship and they had won two in a, a dozen years or whatever. But um, it, it makes sense for those two teams to have to kind of take the same philosophy because still neither one of them is really Alabama from a recruiting brand standpoint, I wouldn't say. I think they're both still don't quite have that going for them, but uh, they, they want to be on that level. And it, it, I think it, it makes sense that they would take kind of a similar strategy to try to get there. And I get, listen, everybody always talks about family and that kind of thing when they get into recruiting. I get it. I mean, that's that's obviously important. You want to feel like you're comfortable around the people at the school that you're picking, that you have trust in them. So, of course, players are looking for that family atmosphere, but everybody's looking for it. But as much as like, I think Dabo, the two sides of the Dabo coin, on one side of the coin, you know, some people might perceive him as we talk about him on Buckeye Talk. But I definitely can see how the other side of the coin, people perceive him as like a, you know, Coach Sweeney, man. I love that guy. You know, that there's a family atmosphere then. That that he definitely could have an appeal like that. And that is something, and again, all programs do it. But certainly, Stephen, Ohio State pushes that kind of thing. The brotherhood, family atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Ohio State hammers that all the time. And, and that's what Dabo Sweeney does too. Yeah, actually, I asked Blake Miller that today, today's. Tuesday and recording on Tuesday is coming out on Wednesday. Just just remind people who Blake Miller is for the people who don't follow recruiting every day. Blake Miller, top two hundred guy, offensive lineman out of Strongsville, Ohio, is you know, another example of Clemson coming up to Ohio to steal Ohio offensive lineman, top two hundred guy who for a long time throughout the entire summer was crystal ball to Ohio State. 
and didn't commit when those crystal balls really started moving and eventually chose Clemson. And I got a chance to talk to him on Tuesday and I asked him straight up that exact type of question. There's the Dabo Sweeney that the average fan might know. There's the Dabo Sweeney that we as media members know, but then there's the Dabo Sweeney that recruits and players know. And what's that? My exact question was, what's that guy like? And he said a lot of those things. He's kind of family oriented. Yes. He can be a little crazy when he talks to the media, but with us, he's very caring and down to earth, especially when he can get these kids on campus and let them see the campus and see things and how they operate. It's, it's a very much a family atmosphere and the, the, the spirituality part of it as well plays a role in the things and how they kind of see eye to eye with some of that stuff. But yeah, there's a way there's the crazy double that we see, but then there's a family element to what he's built there at Clemson that a lot of these recruits continue to fall in love with. Ohio State almost seems like the more secular version of that, or it's like it's like non-denominational Christian versus Southern Baptist, but everybody's trying to get to heaven from a football standpoint. From a football standpoint. I mean, Dabo reminds me, there's a part of Dabo that reminds me of Trestle a little bit. That like, you know, Trestle was very much, could be in that kind of vein and just really just do that family kind of thing. But then there are people on the other side of the coin. I mean, people would tell you the same thing. There are people who thought, I mean, you saw, we saw the coverage during Tattoo Gate people who thought Trestle was duplicitous. And then there were people who thought that Jim Trestle is like a great family man and man of faith. And it's just like two sides to that Trestle coin. And on some ways I can see how, and whether it's true or not, I think that's what the perception was. And I think that's the perception in a lot of ways of Dabo. It just reminds me of that a little bit. All right. So they recruit against each other. Now they're playing each other, but it's not a rivalry. As we said, Nathan, you like to point out in the text when people say things in interviews that we talked about previously on Buckeye Talk, because it's like a reinforcement to our textures of we're not always dumb. Sometimes we're on to something. But there was something that a Clemson player said on Tuesday that was like, yes, that's exactly what we were talking about on Monday. Yeah, I mean, Amari Rogers saying that, you know, that he understand he, he feels like Ohio State has beef with them, but they don't have beef with Ohio State. And it's kind of like, again, the way I was describing it, that analogy you could make with someone like an Ohio State and Wisconsin situation where, yeah, you want to beat them head to head. Ohio State wants to win that championship, but they don't think they feel it as personally as the team that keeps getting beat year in and year out and just kind of can't quite get over the hump and and also kind of gets defined by the fact that they can't win that game. And I think that's what kind of adds on one. That's where the beef comes from. I think that's where it becomes a little bit more personal for Ohio state than it is for Clemson. I just thought it boiled down everything that we've been talking about to They have more beef with us than we do with them or whatever, which is like, yep, that's it. He just said it perfectly. So let's stay on our Armani Rogers and the Clemson receivers. As we talk about this game, we've done a lot of talking on this side of the ball about how is this Ohio state defense going to stop? this multifaceted Clemson offense. So we don't want to cover all the same ground we've covered before, but now we got to talk to these guys about it. Nathan, there was a little bit of a vibe of the idea that Clemson thought its receivers, and last year they had T. Higgins and Justin Ross and Armani Rodgers. Now they only have Rodgers and some new guys. And they have a fifth-year guy who kind of got a chance to play, but that they thought their receivers did not play that well last year and i think a lot of it was some of that a little press man coverage a little aggression from the ohio state corners it feels like clemson wants to do better in that area but also by the way those guys who are up bothering the clemson receivers like they're not here anymore it to me it was one of those examples of people are trying to connect storylines because these teams are playing in back-to-back years so what happened last year 
how is that going to affect what happens this year? And because Dabo Swinney said something along the lines of um, our receivers didn't play well last year, our receivers didn't match their intensity, whatever, we got beat off the line a little bit, that that became a thing that the receivers were getting asked about today. The problem being, again, like you said, last year they were going up against three first-round cornerbacks. There were a lot of teams that got shut down by those guys last year, or at least limited strongly by those guys. And this year, it's not the case. I think Clemson's it's even if Clemson's receivers come down a notch this year, I think it's an easier assignment. I think Ohio state still has much more to prove in this game than Clemson's receivers do as far as who wins this game. And now of course, Ohio state has a first team, all American cornerback. Sean Wade has made two first team, all American teams, the two that have been released so far. Um, Sean Wade's really good, but the one thing we are trying to figure out, we're doing these different matchups that, that, Stephen and Nathan are doing and analyzing particular guys who may wind up dealing, you know, facing each other during the game. And we also talk about the position groups, but Stephen, you asked Sean Wade about this, right? Mm-hmm. We were kind of wondering what they might do. How is Sean Wade expecting that he will be deployed? Cause a little bit of the, the push and pull here is Sean Wade is Ohio state's best cornerback. He's outside. Now Clemson's best receiver is Armani Rogers. He's in the slot. So then what do you do? What are they going to do, Steven? They're going to play like normal, and Sean Wade's going to be outside, which he kind of shut that down quickly. I went into his long soliloquy to give the an- get to ask the question. He was just, no, we're just going to play like normal, which we'll see. Uh, let, let, let's see what happens after a quarter if Armani Rogers has four catches for 64 yards and a touchdown, then if they still feel that way with Marcus Williamson on him. But uh, to start out with, they're going to play things as Ohio State usually does. They've got two outside guys and, and seven banks and Sean Wade, and Marcus Williamson will be in the slot. Now, the one thing is, I don't think they're going to line up and play man. They're not just going to say, well, Marcus Williams, like they're going to do, they're going to give some different cover looks. They're going to play some zone. They're going to have safety help. They're going to have linebackers helping. They're going to go throw some looks at Trevor Lawrence because I don't think anybody thinks that you can just line up and have Marcus Williamson play man coverage on Armani Rogers and like, that's it. So I, I don't think it'll be that. I don't know. Combs didn't get asked about it, and I'm sure he wouldn't have talked about it anyway. But one of the things last year was they played more to safety look against Clemson than they did during the regular season. They've been using a little more to safety look this year than they did last year. But how much are they going to do that? How much will the, will the personnel allow them to do that? But yeah. there may be situations where maybe you line up with two deep safeties. You only have two linebackers in the game. But then Josh Proctor, one of those deep safeties, is giving help in the slot on Armani Rogers, it's not going to be Marcus Williamson. Just get out there and line up and do your thing. But I don't know, Steve or Nathan, what do you think about the discussion today about how this all might shake out? Because Kerry Combs was also talking about how they only had three healthy safeties for the Northwestern game because of all the COVID things. Ronnie Hickman was out and Marcus Hooker was out and they kind of survived. But if they're back to full strength, they'll have more options at least on Friday than they did last time they played. And even Bryson Shaw was out, the other guy who had gotten some reps late in the Michigan State game. So, I mean, they were missing a lot at safety. And that is, I think, one of the things to keep an eye on when that status report comes out Friday. Because you're right, they did play more two, two safety looks against Clemson. It was it was a big part of the game plan in a way that maybe is the only time you could say that these last two years. They have used it more this year. It's been more part of the game plan, but it was almost a staple of the game plan last year. And I don't, we don't know yet if they're going to have the personnel available. If you don't have Hickman, you don't have Hooker, I, I think it limits how much you're going to probably rely on, on those two safety looks. So 
that's that's one of the main things I'm looking for Friday morning for the, the status report. I know that there's there's a lot of stuff out there about who will be back or not because of COVID, but I think those were injury situations. Yeah. So are are those guys going to be available to play? Um, because they were both kind of on the verge, supposedly being able to play and just couldn't go in the Big Ten championship game. So the one thing that Clemson brought up a lot today, Tony Elliott and the offensive coordinator for Clemson, who's just a fantastic coordinator, their other offensive guys, it got mentioned several times that Ohio State's defense is designed to stop the run first. And that's part of this single safety look, is that when you bring that that corner down and you have him play man or he's close to the line of scrimmage, you play three corners. So that corner there, he can help. Because Sean Wade would do that. He could help in run defense, especially if you run wide at all. You can attack. That helps. That guy can blitz. But also, you keep the three linebackers in the game. So you have a lot of guys. You end up with a lot of guys in the box. And you only have one guy deep. And you're not wasting two guys deep when you're trying to defend the run. So they were talking about Ohio State is designed to stop the run first. And last year, they did stop the run a little bit, right? But the thing that I'm very curious how all this is going to work out this year because, and I think I've said this before, but it just was, it caught my, uh, my ear, how much the Clemson guys were saying they're designed to stop the run. I think Clemson already knows they can't run. So like Ohio state's designed to stop the run. I think they have guys who can stop the run linebackers, defensive tackles, but Clemson has not run it as much all year because their offensive line is young and they're used. So they started throwing it to ATN. It's like, the thing that Ohio State does best, Clemson already has accounted for. And so I'm very curious how that works into how Ohio State lines up. That if they aren't that afraid of the run, does it make them play two safeties even more? Right? That you're going to drop those guys back. Listen, Clemson, they might not even try it. So it just, there was a lot of like sort of, they do this, so we do that. So what's that going to mean? And then it all gets back to, the versatility of Travis Etienne, which came up again today, Stephen, and just like, do you think Ohio State is is built to deal with that or not? I I don't know that you're going to stop Travis Etienne. They kind of stopped him a little bit as a runner last year, but then they got hurt in the screen game. What was your vibe on how that all felt today? The discussion around Ohio State and this versatile All American running back. Yeah, I think Nathan was uh, asking a lot of these questions, and I agree with it. I think this this game is part of the reason why Pete Warner is now a will linebacker because when you're a weak side linebacker, part of your responsibility is the running back in pass coverage, and I, Pete Warner's p- pass coverage skills are pretty well noted at this point from what he did last season as a Sam. And so when you add in what he's been able to bring as a weak side linebacker in with – now, if they're, if they're in a pass situation and Ohio State's able to get pressure, but they just slip Travis Etienne right underneath those line, right underneath where those linebackers and defensive linemen would be and just dump a pass off to him, it's not going to be a 50-yard touchdown pass this time. Well, Pete Warner might be able to track it down. And that was part of the problem last year is you got pressure, but then you forgot about one of the most valuable weapons Clinton has because he just slipped in beneath you, underneath all of you guys. So I think that's part of the reason why – Baron Browning is at Sam because he can cover some tight ends, and but also why Pete Warner is that is that will linebacker that that's not going to stop Travis Etienne, but at least it you know, contains it a little bit more than you did last year. It really felt like Nathan. You feel like this was almost like this defense was almost built for this. That was almost geared toward a player like Etienne with some of the the decisions the Buckeyes made. Well, I, that, that's what I was trying to ask them, and nobody ever actually really came out and said that. But I think it it 
you, it's very obvious that they match up better against someone. I mean, a lot of the questions Ohio State players were getting <clears throat> about ETN, their response was, oh, he's so versatile. And then a lot of the questions we were asking Clemson players about Ohio State's linebackers, they were coming back and saying, oh, they're so versatile. It just seems like a strength-on-strength strength situation there. I will say that the chess match, though, is a little bit interesting. Is what you are talking about before. Like, maybe, you know, <laughs> you're, you're trying to, like, outthink that other person. So, okay, you Clemson, you, you think Clemson isn't going to run the ball that much anyway, so then you bring that second high safety and maybe give up something in the box, and then Clemson sees that, and they get to the counter with Travis Etienne, which is one of the best running backs in the country, and, and probably is a little bit more physical and a little bit better between the tackles than he gets credit for. So then do they go to that, try to take advantage of that? Like, I think there's a, there's a real interesting give and take potentially developing there. The one thing that if Ohio State – does wind up playing more two safety looks. At least they have guys who have played it this year. Not necessarily the two safety. Well, the yeah. two safety look more, mm-hmm. but even if they've had guys who just are back there, both Proctor and Hooker have been back there. And then Ransom was back there some last yeah. week. Just the idea that Josh Proctor got put in a spot last year to play whatever it was, 15 or 20 snaps against Trevor Lawrence. And like, he just hadn't played that much. So mm-hmm. at least they will be, the guys are a little more accustomed to it. Josh Proctor is talented. He got put in a really tough spot last year. But I, you did, Nathan, in the course of this, ask about ask Tony Elliott about Pete Werner specifically. And I thought you got a pretty good answer from the Clemson offensive coordinator about Werner. Yeah, just that he last year, you know, going into the game, it wasn't that I don't think they thought he was a bad player or anything, but there were some things about him that don't really just like jump off the film at you. And it wasn't until they actually saw him in the game, um, whether that was that maybe he's a little bit bigger than you give him credit for. He's more athletic than you give him credit for um, the way that he pursues and just plays tough to the ball. And is, is one of those guys that's uh, as we've seen over the years, just it always seems to be near the ball at the end of a play. They just that he came away. Um, you came away from that game with a lot of respect for him. I feel like is what is is what Elliot was trying to say. So now, uh, now he's already a guy who's on the radar. But again, switching sides of the field, it does it, it change a little bit how they might try to attack that. All right, we'll come back. We'll talk a little about Trevor Lawrence. Talk about whether the playoff system is broken. Uh, a few more things we learned from these interviews on Tuesday with the Buckeyes and the Tigers. You are listening to Buckeye Talk. Back on Buckeye Talk, the run game with Trevor Lawrence did hurt Ohio State last year, and Nathan, Kerry Combs brought up a point that I think you brought up the other day, which is they run Trevor Lawrence at the end of the year. That, like, Ohio State sees it too. That maybe it's not there all the time, but when it matters, they know he's going to run and nobody's going to be surprised by it this time around. Well, his overall point was essentially a a respect that he has after now having studied Lawrence for really the first time um, just respect for his ability to extend plays now sometimes that is some of the things that Justin Fields does you know buying yourself time by getting out of the pocket and still being being able to make a play in the pass game but then also it, just getting outside the pocket and, and taking off with it um, he was he was asked specifically about um, I, I'm assuming this was maybe a Tim May question because it was something about somebody saying they had just talked to Urban Meyer and I don't know who else that I can't remember who else I would have been but um, the, the, basically him agreeing with Urban Meyer that he's faster than you would think and that it, it, it's, it, is, it is a weapon that they do kind of keep in 
in reserve. I don't know if you'd say in reserve because they do use it at other times, but it because it's not necessarily end of the year. I think it's big games. I mean, they, he did it against Notre Dame. I guess that's technically towards the end of the year. But w- when he needs it, he does it. It's just one of those things. I think we've seen the same thing with Justin Fields, though, that in games where he doesn't necessarily need it, they don't use it. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right, but except I don't know if Tony Ellett is ever going to Trevor Lawrence and said stay in the pocket. And we, I think Justin Fields has heard that a lot. Like the most he's used it this year is when Ryan Day wasn't on the sideline. Well, I mean, but he might have. I mean, like, I, I don't, I mean, Trevor Lawrence is a good runner. He might, they might have told him. I mean, I don't, so you think that, you think what, that maybe. I think, I think the way Clemson uses Trevor Lawrence is the way that Ohio State has not necessarily wanted to use Justin Fields as and for different reasons the past two years last year you literally couldn't afford for him to get hurt because the drop-off was so magnifying and this year just might be the part of the same thing but also because you've got weapons that you can use on offense that you can kill a big 10 team with so it's I, I and one's a quarterback guy and the other Clemson Tony Ellis not necessarily a quarterback guy so Ryan wants to sit back there and chuck the ball around that's not necessarily the case with Clemson's offense all the time the other thing that Combs was talking about, though, was with Lawrence was that it's not just all reactionary, that he um, thinks he's got great pre-snap recognition, that he he makes a lot of decisions before the snap ever happens that look later like maybe they were improvisation, but that they were designed by base or, or a re- realization he had based on what he saw that defense bringing up to the line before the snap. It really is. I mean, I think I just feel like they're going to throw to ETN and run Lawrence. And they're yeah. just not going to run ETN like up the middle that much. Like I, tra- I don't think Travis ETN has to worry about Tommy Togiai, <laughs> right? Like that's, I just don't think that's yeah. where it's at. I think it's going to be ETN. Someone's like an option. It's like ETN wide and Lawrence up the middle and, and we'll see what happens. We've kind of said that before though. Um, what did you think of, oh, I, I know what I want to ask. I want to ask Steven this first. Mm-hmm. Tony Elliott, the Clemson offensive coordinator brought this up a couple of times. Kerry Combs is new. He's back. He's new. A year ago, this was Jeff Halfley calling this game with Greg Madison. Now it's Kerry Combs calling this game with Greg Madison. But Tony Ellett was basically saying, well, I mean, it's the same thing, though. It's the same defense. They're going to do what they're going to do. We spent a lot of time in the offseason trying to figure out what's going to be different. Some things are different. I don't know. Some complicated things I probably can't even understand. But it's still Ryan Day's defense. And Tony Elliott was basically saying same kind of thing. We talk, we've talked a lot about Brent Venables for this game, like his defense, right? And I just think you do that a little bit um, when it's the coordinator on the opposite side of the ball. So, you know, Tony Elliott's important and Kevin Wilson's important, but it's just that coordinator on the other side. Is this a big game for Kerry Combs, Stephen? Like, is he not on the hook, but like, can Kerry Combs show us something or is it really about, you know what? It's the same kind of look as a year ago. We know Kerry Combs is a great coach. He's a great recruiter. He develops players. Like it's not, this is not like a Kerry Combs game plan game for him to come up with some great scheme to stop Trevor Lawrence. Or is it that? Because I think on the other side, that's what we think it is. We're talking about like Justin Fields and versus Brent Venables. Is it Trevor Lawrence versus Kerry Combs? Or is it is it not the same for whatever reason? No, I, I think it's Trevor Lawrence against Kerry Combs because it can be the same at base. Sure, it's you know single high safety cover three stuff. That's all the same. But Jeff Halfley also made some pretty quality play calls in that game at the right times. The Sean Wade targeting goal that was actually a great play call to blitz right there. 
after what, you, what we had been seeing and making them drive the field. Okay, now let's go attack them and be the aggressor real quick. It just didn't pan out the way they wanted it to. But I think the last time we saw Kerry Combs get an opportunity to kind of show us something as a defensive coordinator, Indiana threw for 400-plus yards. So this is, I think, his next opportunity to play a pretty quality quarterback as elite-level quarterback. Jeff Halfley had shown us some things during the season. Even if it wasn't Trevor Lawrence's level of quarterback, it was still pretty pretty decent quarterback play for a Big Ten. And he passed that before he even got to Clemson. And we haven't seen that with Kerry Combs. So, yeah, there are some things for him to prove as a play caller in this game because he, like, as Nathan has already pointed out, he's doing this without three first-round cornerbacks. And part of it, I think we've talked about this, the defensive line often gets pressure, but do they get home? Do you have to blitz a little more to get home at certain times? I mean, they're playing, you know, Kerry Combs said today, he thinks he's one of the best quarterbacks in college football history, Trevor Lawrence is. That's who they have to deal with. I don't know that you can just sort of sit back and, and you know, hope something goes wrong. I think you've got to come up with a plan to attack Trevor Lawrence in some way. And you just don't have as many guys who are going to make those plays on your own, maybe. You know, you don't have Chase Young. Now you do have Haskell Garrett, Tommy Togiai. They might get pressure on their own. But how much do you feel like this is a a Kerry Combs game, Nathan? I, I'll be curious because, I mean, here's what I do think. I think if Clemson wins and puts up 49, I think people are going to talk about Kerry Combs after the game, right? I think they're going to say, man, yes, maybe Ohio State was – a half step short at some individual positions compared to where they are sometimes. But I think people will say like, man, what was up with that, with that scheme there for a first year coordinator who's never been a coordinator before. I don't know. I can just sort of imagining that half, imagine that happening. Or, or, or do you think, no, that that wouldn't be how that would go if Trevor Lawrence goes nuts. I think it's possible people will say that, but I think people often try to jump to the coaching being the problem when sometimes just your team is not good enough. And it may just be that this defense is not good enough to hold Clemson under 49 points. We don't know that yet. Um, that That's still the thing to be that, – that, that's why I don't think I'm hanging much of this on Kerry Combs because Kerry Combs may or may not have been given a, a personnel this year and then given the opportunity to develop them too. That was the other problem here. That that It would be one thing if you had given him 12 games, given the staff 12 games to, to develop the, this this team the way that it needed to be without interruption, and that, that didn't happen. But then they were also with some – again, they were relying on some guys at important places that um, were unproven guys. I don't really know that they've proven themselves at a championship level yet. So that's still why – I don't know that this is – you were talking about the other day about asterisks. I almost think of this as like an asterisk season for Combs to some extent as far as like whether he has to come in and scheme it up to being – something more than it would be otherwise. Um, because, you know, again, as Stephen points out, you know, that was a great play call at that moment. But Jeff Halfley also had Sean Wade descend on that blitz. Um, Kerry Combs isn't going to have Sean Wade descend off a corner blitz, we don't think. He's not going to have Chase Young coming off the edge. He's got players who are good, but not, but less than that. So I, it's hard for me to make that comparison. If Ohio State wins this game by a similar score to the, what they won Indiana by, not even how it played out, but just it's a 42 to 35 win, are people worried about Kerry Combs? If they give up 35. If they win? No. No, yeah. if they win, nobody cares. No. I mean, people yeah, they don't, no, if they win. If it's – and whether that's fair or not, yeah. I mean – And that's probably could, how – don't you think that's how they're going to have to win this? I mean, it's one of those things. I think most people – I think more people are probably at closer to a shootout than not. Yeah. But also – 
last year. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, I, I just don't know. Nathan, you're kind of making the point that it's such an easy comp- – is this the point you're making, Nathan? It's so obvious. They played each other a year ago. They just played. But actually, that game might not really tell us that much about mm-hmm. this game because of who was there then and who's not here now. That, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. That I think it's it's there are some similarities, and there are some some players who are in, if not the same spot, they're still starting on this defense the same way they were a year ago. The three linebackers and Sean Wade, I guess, being the prominent ones. But then there's a lot of other guys. I mean, Jonathan Cooper didn't play in this game last year. There's a lot of different faces in this game, especially on the defensive side of the ball for Ohio State, and that's why I think it's 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 a little bit difficult to make that that head-to-head comparison. I think if they win at 42 to 35. That sounds to me kind of like a, a victory for the defense. I think just it, holding Clemson to a point where your offense can win this game is a win for this defense when you get to this stage. That's not me ragging on this defense, though. That's I think that's the playoffs to me. And they did it last year. That defense played well enough to win that game. Wow. Absolutely. And that's the whole po- – I mean, that really – and I've made this point several times, and, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but, like, I just thought as much as – Ohio State did fail in the red zone and they didn't score enough touchdowns and they kicked too many field goals early. They still were ahead early on because they were shutting down Clemson. And so it's like, okay, well, they should have been this. It's like, okay, well, Clemson was doing nothing. They were doing literally nothing. And so I've always had trouble with the idea of, well, Ohio State's downfall was their huge lead wasn't huge enough. And I know that's a big thing in football. Hey, if you've dominated the team, why aren't you ahead by more? But Clemson was doing nothing and the thing that Kerry Combs said today is their list of explosive plays is gigantic. And that when you look back last year, it was a huge ETN play, a huge Lawrence play. It wasn't necessarily March, no. March, 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 March. It, <coughs> excuse me. It was out of nowhere. The quarterback is running for 70 yards out of nowhere. The all American running back catches a little pass and takes off. And that, I mean, they do that to everybody is what Kerry Combs is saying. That's what Clemson does. Trevor Lawrence will take off and do that at any moment. Travis Etienne will do that to you at any moment. Rodgers will catch something over the middle of the field and be gone at any moment. And that feels like, I don't think that's going to stop Steven. Right. I mean, like I, I mean, Clemson is going to break some big plays if they did it last year against those guys, like they're going to do it this year. Aren't they? Yeah. And so, so to that point, we might be right. It might just be on the offense to give a little bit of ease for this defense. Who's going to give up a 40 yard play at some point, because this is the best quarterback in college football, one of the best running backs. So maybe the the emphasis isn't on can can Ohio state stop Clemson. It should, it should be on can Ohio state score and not settle for field goals again. And by the way, those big plays weren't completely out of nowhere. Some of them happened as a direct correlation of Sean Wade no longer being in the game, too. That was definitely an influence there. So you take one player off of that defense and a really good player, but still leaving out all of those other NFL draft picks on that defense. And that still made that significant of a difference. Yeah, because their first points literally came because they attacked Amir Reed the moment Sean Wade left the field. What do we think of Trevor Lawrence? He's good. He's very good. And he's a nice guy, just like Justin is. I mean, it's like it, it is like these two guys who are the best quarterbacks in college football. No offense to Mac Jones and Kyle Trask. I mean, the, the draft's going to show it um, They're They've been connected forever and they're just like they're very personable, kind of cool 
guys. Like I just, it, it, I don't like what, does anybody not like Justin Fields? Does anybody not like Trevor Lawrence? Don't do they? I mean, they just seem like pleasant fellows. So I don't know that I learned anything more. What did you think? We got to talk to Trevor Lawrence for 12 minutes today, Nathan, just like we've been talking to everybody for between nine and 12 minutes. Did you have anything that you learned or that you took away from what Trevor Lawrence said today? No, I don't know that I gained a lot of insight. I thought Stephen, he gave a long answer to, to Stephen about some recruiting stuff. I didn't have much of a uh, exchange with him. Um, and, and a lot of his, you know, got some of the same questions that he got last year about Justin Fields and that sort of stuff. But there is a, there is a similarity there. There, there, you know, his, his personality, I think is a little bit different than, than Justin's, but, but I, I see what you're saying as far as like, they're just kind of two guys who seem pretty well adjusted. They don't seem to be too um, full of themselves or too, um, too in their head in this kind of moment that it, they kind of let it come to them and, and seem to handle it well, or at least they have. So, you know, but that could be a factor, I think on, on Friday, if it, who handles that situation better, because I don't know that Justin has in a couple of instances this year. And Steven, you asked about this and I want, I want you to tell the people about it, but how many times did you look at Trevor Lawrence today and just say, Quinn Ewers, Quinn Ewers, Quinn Ewers, <laughs> Quinn Ewers, Quinn Ewers, Quinn Ewers. Um, uh, the whole time, every, every time he played with his hair, I'm like, did not just imagine that hair as a mullet and then scarlet and gray and you've got him and got when you and just three inches shorter because he's only six three and trevor's six six and so yeah i, I basically asked him hey what's Tre- and what's Ke- when yours going through right now because it's a very similar storyline where clemson's had plenty of five-star quarterbacks in the in the past and they had just gotten one in hunter johnson who was a five-star guy in 2017 and then they went and got trevor who is the five-star of five-star quarterbacks who when quarterbacks you commit somewhere, you have to worry about who's going into the room with you, even if it's a small part, as Trevor Lawrence said. But when you're Trevor Lawrence, you don't have to worry about that because you're going to go in there and you're going to win that job. And I, I can't wait to talk to Quinn Ewers about this, but I feel like he feels the same way. It's I'm who I am and everybody else has to worry about where I'm going first. And he gave a pretty interesting answer to that. But also to I, I followed up with were you shocked by how quickly the room changed because quarterbacks are going to transfer, but it was almost immediate. Kelly Bryant transferred the moment Trevor Lawrence got announced as a starter. Hunter Johnson, I don't even think he made it into that season. I think he transferred before the season started. So the moment Trevor Lawrence arrived, the room started changing. And as we talk about with Ohio State, what that's going to look like in two years with C.J. Stroud, Jack Miller, Kyle McCord, Quinn Ewers, I am interested to see how quickly that room might change depending on how that how it plays out. And I did think it was interesting that Trevor Lawrence, even Trevor Lawrence did say, you do think about who you're going to be competing against at the school because he said, like, you have to get on the field. Like, mm-hmm. if you're not on the field, what's the point? Like, he did say that. And as you said, he's the five-star of five stars, just like Quinn Ewers is. So even if – and now, as you said, he said it's not the main consideration, but even he thought about that a little bit, and he's Trevor Lawrence, which means everybody who's not Trevor Lawrence yeah. thinks about it even more. So it was somebody admitting that it's not – I mean, I feel like sometimes, and we've had this discussion multiple times on this podcast, and sometimes the people push back and say, well, you know, you have to have confidence in yourself and you just got to go pick a bill. And it's like, well, it's people do think about it. It's just life. Of course, it's, it's some consideration. So I was glad to hear Trevor Lawrence yeah. admit that, that whatever percent, even the best you look and see, maybe doesn't change your decision, but they know, they know the yeah. deal. Because as he said, you have to get on the field. 
he could easily be Justin Fields right now and have lost. And maybe he's Ohio State's quarterback and Justin Fields is – and Ohio State's playing Georgia because Justin Fields is there. But the other thing to remember is I think there's a reason why there's only, it's only a certain percentage of his decision because it's like – you know, if it, if, if there's, if the, the teams that are going to be recruiting those guys at the very, very, very top, almost always will have some other good quarterback in the room. So it's not like he's going to go to South Carolina instead of going to Clemson. You know what I mean? Like, I think he's still yeah. going to go to the best program possible. I guess, I understand what you're saying that you have to take it into some consideration, but I also think that there's, they're, they're, they're also considering a narrower group of schools to begin with. Which is, I think was, his, it does, it's depending on who you are on the scale of things is how much of a, it's how much of a consideration it is for him. It's maybe 5% for a four star guys, probably 60%. Would you, would you like to go bomb? Where's Georgia playing? They're playing Cincinnati. Is that right? Yeah. In yep. Football there in the Chick-fil-A peach bowl. Is that right? I don't, I don't know. know who sponsors it. No, I, don't I don't, but it's the peach bowl is Georgia. Are Georgia so. and Cincinnati playing the peach? When do they play? Is it tomorrow? When's the game? I don't know when I the game what, is. What? what? Why would I, I know that? Cover Georgia. Little, I uh, want Steven to go bomb the Kirby Smart Sugar Bowl day before uh, Peach Bowl day before news conference today. Kirby, yeah. I was just wondering if you had benched your veteran starting quarterback for Justin Fields and Clemson had not benched Kelly Bryant for Trevor Lawrence. Do you think you with Justin Fields would currently be playing Ohio state who has Trevor Lawrence in a semifinal right now, instead of you pretending for half a season that Stutson Barnett was a college quarterback. And now you're in a bowl game 20 minutes from your campus and you blew it. Steven, would you mind asking that? I'll try to get on the zoom call. Okay. Get that mean, are you are you nervous that Jamie Newman would instead have gone to Clemson and but, still not played? What was I saying? There are some other decisions out there for Georgia that could have got them in the playoff this year. They don't have anything to do with Justin Fields and Trevor Lawrence. Are you insinuating that any quarterback would have been preferable to Stetson Barnett? I feel like that was. I feel like you like like play JT Daniels sooner, for instance. Literally. And I, we, I don't know the full, we don't know the full story there, right? Like as far as when he was cleared and when he, they, all that stuff. I, I, I think there's some question. I don't know, but to my yeah, knowledge, that's he just didn't win the job to begin with. Cause I he think was he Jamie Newman had stayed. Yeah. I feel bad. Uh, let's do this quick break and we'll be back with a brief discussion about whether the playoff is broken next on Buckeye talk. Back on Buckeye Talk, looking at a Dan Wetzel column, arguably the best sports writer in America. When I uh, when I worked at my first job in uh, sports writing in a small paper in Northwest Indiana, I worked with two guys who went to UMass, and were it was like I was in a three man office where there were three sports writers in the office, and it was me and these two friends who had been at the University of Massachusetts together, and their friend who was their sports writer friend who also went to the University of Massachusetts and who came to visit them sometimes was Dan Wetzel. And then I was like, oh, look, it's that guy. And then it was like, oh, 15 years later, it's like, oh, yeah, that guy. Oh, he's the best sports writer in America. I, I know his friends. Um, he wrote a column that's out on Tuesday that says college football is broken. Here's how it can be fixed. 
And it's basically, I think we've had this discussion that the playoff, it's all this. I mean, everyone's having this discussion. It's all the same teams in the playoff. Does it kill, does it kill uh, interest in it? And so he has four things and I'll get to the, the first one last. I'm going to do it in reverse order of his subheads and what he thinks will help change it. One he says is the transfer rule. And now if you let players transfer without having to sit out, this is, it's, he calls it a potential disruptor worth watching. And we've talked about it before that the good teams might steal good players from the mid-tier teams. So, you know, Michael Penix might be Penn State's quarterback next year. Or the mid-tier teams might get backups from the good teams who don't want to sit around and they can transfer and play right away. Does that feel like a thing that could help even the playing field and make college football more interesting. Yes or no. Will the one-time transfer immediately. Will that help Steven? Will that help everything? No, no, just for now. I'll just say no. And then let Nathan give his answer. Nathan, what do you think? Will it help on its own? No, I think it's a wash. I think it's probably a wash too. And I'm not so sure it won't be worse the other way that like every single time, like, will Zach Wilson stay at BYU or be like, Oh, Zach Wilson's really good. And now he's USC's quarterback. Like, I just, I just, I, I think it's mo- it, potentially more that it's like, you've been, every time you bring up the all American voting, you talk about, there was some guy at North Texas who got yeah. voted. And I'm like, you'd know who that guy was by next year, whether he makes the all American team or not. Cause he'd be like at Clemson or Texas or Ohio state. He'd be, he'd be somebody else's starting receiver. He wouldn't still be at North Texas. Right. And that the idea that, um, I mean, the idea that, a yeah. guy who's sitting around somewhere and didn't want a job, and so he transferred somewhere else. And I mean, he that's he's still not better than the guy he lost out to. That like 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 Ohio State might lose like Dallas Gant, or might lose like uh, just like a really good player like that. He's a very good player, just has trouble getting on the field. But the result is they get the Justin Fields and the Jonah Jacksons and the guys they've already mm-hmm. gotten. They just get even more of them. I just I do think it actually might work against it. It's interesting, but I think it might work against it, actually. Name, image, and likeness is another thing he brings up. The idea that, he says this, while many think the big schools will benefit the most, it is more likely that by bringing above-the-board money into the recruiting game, the talent will actually spread out. Even at Alabama, there's only so much money. Nathan, what do you think of that? Do you think name, image, and likeness spreads out the talent that's a lot of this is you spread out the talent so that not all the best guys are going to ohio state alabama and clemson every year do you think name image and like this will do that no steven do you think it will a little bit yeah i I don't think it will either i think it just will help i mean like he, he says that many think the big schools will benefit the most. I'm in the many. I'm in the many who yeah. think the big schools will benefit the most. I guess so, I'm, I, like I'm trying to. I, so I mean, here's the example that I'm always dealing with from my current position, past position. So I'm like, if a person was considering Ohio State and Purdue, which doesn't happen very often, but maybe it's like a three star from Indiana. It's like, do you want to go to Purdue and start in two year, three years, or do you want to go to Ohio State and maybe never start, but it's still Ohio State? So that's a choice you have. Like I don't know that like name, image, and likeness. Where does that ever come into that? I, I mean, think I, that Ohio, we, Doug, you've written this, and I've talked to recruits about this. The fact that Ohio State's best suit set up to handle this because it's a big, it's one of the best programs in the country, but it's also in a major city. 
Alabama and Clemson aren't necessarily in that. And so I do think a school like Minnesota might benefit from being in Minneapolis, um, a school that's maybe like Georgia Tech, uh, not at the same level, obviously, but can, being in Atlanta, USC, maybe this is how they're able to get back on top if they ever get their offices together. I do think there is a level that these schools who are in bigger cities who can maybe benefit from the name, image, and likeness stuff can, this is their window because it's not, it's no longer just about football. It's like, Hey, come be the starting quarterback in a major city on an up and coming program. But I also think that a place like Tuscaloosa, you're going to have like every like Uh bait and tackle shop in town is going to come up with 500 bucks to slip somebody for an ad or something. You know what I mean? Like not slip above board. board. I was, I I wasn't trying to insinuate anything underhanded. Uh, but yeah. but they're going to come up with like in it, even if it's going to like the fourth string, um, whatever they're they're still going to do it. Like I think everybody at a place like that is probably still going to get a taste because the fan base is so rabid, the following is so rabid. I actually think right. smaller places in the SEC that might be true. But again, to go back to my example of a, a Purdue or someplace in the MAC or Boston College or something like that, like I just don't know that that's that same dynamic doesn't really exist there in terms of where that money is coming from and how much people actually even care to go that far down on the roster. I think at Ohio state, yes, there's that big money for the Justin Fields and the chase youngs and, and what they could have maybe from a national ad campaign or whatever, but also that's how the, um, the, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on who the Dallas Gantt that you're mentioning. Like, I think there's more opportunity for like the Dallas Gantt to get something at Ohio state than there is, even if he were to go to Purdue and have a, a bigger role. I'm thinking of a five-star quarterback being at Miami in that market and helping that team compete for a national championship. Yeah, that maybe Miami would lose out on that guy currently to Clemson or Georgia or Alabama, but maybe they get him now. I think that's possible. But again, I don't think I don't think it's a huge disruptor for the the big schools. I mean, I think the big schools still benefit the most. Although I do, I think there is room for certain mid-tier or between mid-tier and very good to get a a little more than they get now. All right, next one returns to prominence, which is just some of these historically good programs that aren't good right now. Like, for instance, I'll tell you what, we're in the seventh year of the playoff, and USC has not been in the playoff yet. Uh That is nuts. Who would have thought that? USC is not a playoff factor. Washington's been in. Oregon's been in. Like, what is happening? This whole thing is like, oh, the, like the Pac-12 is not even in, in the playoff discussion most of the time. It's because USC's been down like the whole history of the playoff. That's crazy. So what Dan brings up, a number of historically powerful programs are currently treading water. Florida, Florida State, Miami, Texas, USC, Oregon, Texas A&M, Auburn, Michigan, Wisconsin, Penn State, UCLA, Virginia Tech, Tennessee. I mean, it's built. I mean, it's conference champs. But if every now and then Auburn or Tennessee or Texas A&M won the SEC instead of Alabama, I mean, last year was a little more interesting because LSU got rid of Alabama, took Alabama's spot, and was awesome. It was slightly more interesting. If Florida State or Miami or Virginia Tech was knocking out Clemson every now and then, slightly more interesting. If Michigan or Penn State was the Big Ten champ and getting in instead of Ohio State, Slightly more interesting. Now, the one thing is it can be slightly more interesting. Michigan State made it instead of Ohio State one year. Not interesting. No, but like even the year that Georgia made it and got to the championship game, like even that was a little bit more interesting. Even though they lost, at least it's a flash of somebody different. 
Well, arguably, I think you could argue. Well, no, because the like the Deshaun Alabama game was great. That Georgia Oklahoma Baker Mayfield loses to Georgia overtime game in the semifinal. That's one of that the best games of the playoff era. Yeah, and it's I mean Oklahoma is like the fourth playoff team behind Clemson and Alabama are the big two, then Ohio State, then Oklahoma. They're the four that have dominated the playoff. But like Georgia Oklahoma, just a little different than Clemson Alabama. So this isn't anything different. It's just that I, I don't know if it's coincidental. Or if there's something at play, but in the four, so the Pac-12 is a mess. And in the four other major conferences, there is one team dominating. And even the first playoff in 14, when it's like it wasn't Oklahoma and Texas who were trying to get in for the Big 12, it was Baylor and TCU. That was a little interesting, right? But man, yeah. it's Oklahoma. Every Oklahoma's won six, six straight Big 12 titles, I think. It's Oklahoma, Ohio State, Clemson, and Alabama dominating their conferences. Why is that? Why isn't Texas jumping up? Why aren't Penn State and Michigan jumping up? Why aren't Miami and Florida State jumping up? Why aren't Auburn and LSU and Florida? If Urban was still at Florida, I mean, Florida would be in the playoff right now. I just, I don't know. That's a problem because Nobody is saying, hey, we're sick of the SEC champ. You know the SEC champ's going to be in every year. It's just that it's the same SEC champ every year. Nobody's saying we're sick of the ACC champ. They're sick of Clemson. I don't know, Nathan. I don't know that there's – I don't know that there's anything more than coincidence that has caused it to feel stale because that's what's happened. I don't think that this is really that different than any four, six, eight-year period that you chunk out of college football history, right? Isn't there typically like – a, a, a triumvirate or four teams that are really kind of like the dominant ones. Like if you were to go back to like uh, from 1978 to 1984, like wouldn't it have been like Notre Dame and Penn state. And I mean, I don't know who the uh, Miami and like, it would have been like the same four teams almost every year. Like Nebraska and, and Miami had like a Nebraska, little cross country yeah. oh, yeah. rivalry because they yeah. were meeting on the biggest stage more than once. So and imagine that like every year, Nebraska, Miami, Notre Dame and Penn state playing each other in some combination um, three out of four of those teams, at least every year for like a six year period. Um, I think it, I understand why it would have been a little stagnant for people at the time, but I also think we would be looking back right now, back to then compared to the stupid way they used to decide a national championship and say, man, that was a hell of a playoff. They put together every year for like six years in a row. Those are some incredible teams. And I think that's maybe what they'll look back someday and say about this after we've moved on to the next installment. And that's why you can't agree with the subhead because one, let's just be honest here. Of the teams he listed of return to prominence, if we were at eight teams right now, how many of those teams would be in right now? Yeah, I mean, not as many. I mean, like Oklahoma would be in, but like that's not the point. Oklahoma has been there all the time, but like Texas yeah. would be in, Michigan wouldn't be in, Penn State would have made it one year. USC still, it's not like USC's knocking mm -hmm. on the door. It's not like Florida My, State's knocking on the door. And Miami is just now getting things together. So it's it's to say these teams would return to prominence because there's an extra spot. No, they still wouldn't have those spots. I get what you're saying is if there was more spots, maybe the recruiting no, would well, spread the, out. But the the no, point is, wouldn't. if those teams did return to prominence, it would feel less stale. It would feel less broken oh, yeah. if those teams got better. So they're not. So I, I guess the question is, does the playoff build on it to an extent that once Bama and Clemson especially get rolling, do they get such an advantage by being in the playoff that they become the destination for recruits that their edge on everybody else in their conference grows 
because of the structure of the playoff. And it, now it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And we say, well, why aren't Miami and Florida state beating Clemson? And why aren't Auburn and Florida and LSU beating Alabama? And they're saying, well, because they're in the playoff every year and the kids see that and they all go there and they don't come here. Like that might be one point of this of like, once you're in, it's easier to stay in because it's such an advantage to get all the exposure of being in. Maybe. I, and no, I think, because I, I think Georgia, go ahead. Georgia oh, constantly has a top five class in recruiting, and yet they've got one playoff appearance. But they're so right there. That's true, but they're also right there. But yeah. you're, you're right. And that's why I think that, you know, this is a tough comparison to make, but I'm going to go ahead and make it. Like it's every year so often – how often in basketball does North Carolina, Kansas, Kentucky, Duke, like those teams are always in that final four conversation. And to some extent, like it's, it's hard to find a year where one of those teams is not involved, but what makes that tournament great is the year where that team that nobody's expecting comes out and at least makes some noise. And right now I think the structure of it is that teams like that can't really even make noise. I would argue that more than the traditional powers and expanding the base of these traditional powers who I think people, if you're from a, a lower team in the conference anyway, you already still, even though Michigan has not been up at Ohio State's level, and I know they really fell off this year, a lot of teams still look up at Michigan as being a team of privilege and a team of uh, esteem or whatever, somebody that they're beneath. That's where I think a lot of the Big Ten still looks at them because of their brand. So it's almost more like, do we need more than we need um, Texas to have a resurgence? Do we need um, Matt Campbell to stay at Iowa state and, and finish the job he started there and make Iowa state something big. And like, now you've really put a new, what, what Clemson did basically. Yeah, right. Cause it I wasn't, I mean, Clemson, Clemson isn't like some behemoth in the history of college football. It's only right now that they've risen up like a Phoenix and just dominated things. And I think they need, we need some more of that to happen more than we need Michigan and Penn state and Texas and USC to be great again. Like Brad Stevens at Butler, Brad Stevens yeah. didn't yeah. bail. Mm -hmm. for North Carolina or Kentucky or Indiana, or, or he stayed at Butler. And then he only left for the NBA. And if he hadn't gotten the NBA job, I think Brad Stevens would still be at Butler and Butler would probably be a sweet 16 contender every year. So honestly, one of the other things of the problem is the game. It's the game. I mean, like it's, it's designed. And this is the thing that I don't like is that people act like they want underdogs, but they actually don't. The year that it was like UConn and Butler in the national championship game for college basketball Nobody actually wanted that. UConn was like the seventh best team in the Big East and won the national title. Is that what you honestly want? Is that like that's, a success story? Well, that's why the analogy is is basketball is a different animal and it's not a perfect analogy. That game also stunk, by the way. Yes. That's the other thing. Yeah, like if that had been a great game, I think people would remember it differently. But now I think it colors how people look back at that but, game. But like North Carolina and Villanova was a great game. And it's like, is anyone complaining because like North Carolina and Villanova are traditional no. powerhouses? No, it's a great game. Mm -hmm. No, but I'm saying that it, it enhances the whole experience that there was that North Carolina and Villanova didn't only have to beat Kansas and Kentucky to get into that game. They had the other teams got their shot. They had to prove it on the field. Court. There is a tendency of sometimes among some sports fans to celebrate how awesome it is when the best team doesn't win the title. And I'm always like, why is that great? Like yeah. you've got to earn it, but it's like, oh, remember that year that uh, there was the clearly a, the best team and they lost because a bird flew into the player's face at the last second. It's like, yeah, that was stupid. So like football, it's harder to do that. Everybody can lose a basketball game, but like often in football, I mean, the chiefs are going to go 15 and one, like they're mm -hmm. awesome. They're the best team. 
people think they look bored, but like they're winning every game. Football, the best football team wins a lot. In basketball, sometimes there are more upsets. In baseball, if your pitching staff gets hot or whatever, like a lesser team can win. It can be different and exciting. But I feel like football sometimes ends up apologizing because its best teams win the championships. And its I, I best think it, teams make the playoff. And I don't know that it should be apologizing. It's that, but also I think fans do want a little bit of adversity. And sometimes the guy, the team who ends up winning doesn't really have any. Like if Alabama goes – wins every game by 21 points. That's yes. Alabama's the best team. The best team won the national championship dub, but it's also kind of boring that Alabama just steamrolled through everybody. I think you want some type of, you know, it seemed like they might lose at one point. And that's what made the first playoff. So interesting was that Ohio state was a little flawed and they won the national championship, even if they weren't necessarily the best team going into the playoff. And in football, it's hard sometimes to find a team who's flawed who also wins a championship. Because they're especially in college football, they're usually undefeated. If you go back to the basketball analogy, too, when there are first-round upsets in the NCAA tournament, I think that it's, it's celebrated as a great moment for that team that pulls an upset. I remember Austin P beating uh, Illinois when I was a kid, and that's like probably the greatest game in Austin P history or whatever. Illinois was like a two or three seed. Um, but then it's it's only those teams that then like put together several of those, the George Masons or whatever, and break through the final. Well, that's a very, very, very small category. So I kind of see the same thing in football too. It'd be like, and, and those upsets also are seen as almost a those first round upsets seem almost a flaw of the team that lost as an achievement of the team that won in some ways that team was overrated or whatever. But now in football, I, I think if you were to get a team that made it there and got multiple wins, I, I think that that is where you prove it. Like, you know, the, didn't the giants win the super bowl one year like with like a nine and 17, but they still had to go win four games to then win a championship. So I think, that would still get proven like this year, if it had been an eight team tournament and Oklahoma had got in and they were just putting it all together at the right time and they get all the way to the championship game. I don't think that would be seen as like a flaw of the structure. I think Oklahoma would have had to then go out and prove it against other really good teams in order to even get that far. But you probably even know to go to like a 16 team playoff to get into some of that stuff. Right. Yeah. 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 To get into the mm -hmm. real outlier stuff, but at least this gives you an opportunity, like a team like Indiana, if it was eight teams, a team like Indiana, would have gone into the final weeks of the season with a whisper of a chance to get in this conversation. And, and I think that, that just think about like how much that changes the dynamic in college football right now. Cause part of the issue, for instance, if, if you go to an 18 playoff and a team like Cincinnati is getting in and as the eight seed, they're getting the one seed every year and they're not going to beat the one seed. Yeah. Cincinnati is not going to beat Alabama, but if you have a 16 team playoff and now Cincinnati's the eight seed and they're getting nine seed, Georgia or nine seed Pence. You know what I mean? Like they're getting that yeah. powerhouse that lost a couple games and now they have a chance to beat that team. And now it's like, wow, Cincinnati won a playoff game and you get a little of that vibe and you and increase the chances recruiting. of, cause if you're just putting in lesser teams to get their butts kicked by the top three seeds, you're not going to have that much fun. If you go to 16, you're going to have some upsets and what people want is upsets. And but if you go to a 16, you got to get rid of the bowls. You got to get rid of conference championship games. You got to reduce the regular season by a game. You've got to figure something out because you can't have the unpaid amateurs playing 16 games, right? So that's really what people want. They want the drama. They want the upsets. They want more teams in the mix. And I'm not sure eight even gets you to that. So I've never been a proponent of 16. But if you're telling me you're going to reduce, and the other thing too, 
that we learned, and, and this what I think enhanced the 16 team playoff discussion, because we learned this with the Big Ten this year. You could reduce the regular season. Say you played a 10 game regular season, and now you're going to play a playoff where you have to win four games in the playoff to win. So now that's the champion plays 14 games. If you had the other teams in the conference be like, okay, you're going to play your own mini tournament and we're going to schedule you right. Just like the big 10 did that you, you can keep playing and you can get to 12 games or you can get to 12 games and then we'll have bowls or whatever. And that you allow some quote regular season games to be determined by how the season goes now you're not reducing everybody's number of games, but you're also not putting too much on the playoff teams. I think there's some room in there because if that's what you want, eight's not going to do it, man. Eight is still not going to do it. Last thing is expanding. And this is what Dan talks about. It was his first subhead, expand the college football playoff. It's just that it's kind of what we had been talking about, that it builds on itself when you have the same teams, the same teams keep getting there. That's the easiest thing, right? I mean, that's the most obvious you expand the playoff, you expand opportunity of all the things we talked about. I think that's the thing that would have the greatest effect. Although I think it might not have as much of an effect as people think. So we've talked about this before. Short answer, Steven, do you think we'll get there soon? Are we at eight fairly soon? Probably by the time this contract, this TV contracts up. I think we're at eight because then all the conference champs can get in and it allows three spots for the best of whoever didn't win a conference championship. I think that makes the most sense. You think we're there, Nathan? Yeah, it's going to happen. I mean, Dan Wetzel co-wrote a book laying out this whole plan and what he what he thought a uh, the, the playoff plan should be. And it's so he wrote it so long ago that it was called Death to the BCS. So yeah. people have been kind of drumming this for a long time. And he, he a 16-team tournament was, was part of that. I still think eight would, would be a big help, though, in that it just – again, just imagining a world where if you're Wisconsin – and you you know if I get if you get to the Big Ten championship game and lose to an awesome Ohio State team that that doesn't completely take you out that you might still get a chance to prove it on the field in an eight team situation if you can make it like I think that does change that that is a big change in the current dynamic that we have in college football. That's true, but like also if you had added teams this year, it's like Georgia would be in, Oklahoma would be in, like Texas A and M. Okay, I guess they're interesting, but but you are still going to get in a lot of the same people. Mm-hmm. But 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 again, but the year where Ohio State and Wisconsin are both undefeated going into the Big Ten championship yeah. game, and Ohio State wins, uh, Wisconsin still gets in. Like, I'm, it, it's not going to be every year necessarily. You're still going to get some of those same powers in, but it, it's just about opening the door to make it possible. And the thing right now, Dan, it's not possible for a lot of people. Dan, I don't think he didn't have this as a subhead at least. I mean, the best way to level the playing field would be to reduce scholarships. But I don't think anybody wants to be in the business of like reducing opportunities for amateur athletes. But if you went from 85 scholarships to 65 and those 20 kids that are the bottom 20 kids on Ohio state's roster are now sprinkled throughout the rest of the big 10, because it's not even about playing time. It's about Ohio state's not offering me a scholarship, but Indiana is that levels it faster than anything, but they're not going to do it. And I don't, I'm not saying they should, but that's the answer. You reduce the roster. Not that you reduce the roster size. You just have a bunch more walk-ons guys who are, who are backups who, and now you reduce transfers. Cause you're, I mean, that's the answer. And I don't think anybody wants to do that, but there was a time when they put in a scholarship limit to begin with, because Alabama and Ohio state were recruiting 150 guys just to keep them away from somebody else. And they did put some limit on it. So I'm not advocating that, but that gets you there faster than anything else. 
I, I definitely don't advocate the scholarship limit because for, for the reasons that you say, I will say this is the one place where maybe the, the transfer rule does have some effect. Cause if you go and look at a, a lower tier big 10 teams recruiting thing on 24 seven, go to the bottom of their class. Those guys aren't even ranked. Sometimes this is within the big 10, the teams that are supposed to go head to head with Ohio state who is recruiting Clemson nobody lower than, yeah, I mean, but that that's kind of an outlier. I'm saying yeah. that, like, there's other teams that, like, thrive on that every year. That there's guys yeah. who maybe don't even get a second star until the one bad Big Ten team offers them, and they finally – somebody's like, okay, I guess you're a two-star because you got a scholarship offer from or you signed with a Big Ten team. So, like, that that's the one area where maybe that floor, that, that, that really deep basement isn't quite so deep, but I don't know that it makes a difference at the top. Uh, I just think that sometimes we complain. I think people complain no matter what sometimes. But I, I th- a point you made, Nathan, is that people love dynasties in retrospect. But I wasn't alive when UCLA won 11 of 13 or whatever it was at the Wooden era. I'm imagining people were like, uh, John Wooden. Great. Lou Alcindor and then Bill Walton. But now it's like, I don't know. Is that how we look back on the UCLA? It's like, wow, they were Great. awesome. I mean, that's how it works. Greatness is boring. It, it is. So, I mean, it's like, and the other thing is like, I mean, the best answer might be like Nick Saban retires. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> although Urban Meyer retired and Ohio State didn't stop. So it's like, okay, Nick Saban retires. Dabo goes to Alabama. Brent Venables takes over at Clemson and like everybody's fine. And it's still the same team. So. I don't know. I, I guess I don't know that there's an easy answer, but I guess I would also ask, are we sure there needs to be an answer, right? And expanding the playoff is the easy one, but all the other things, like, are we sure, are we sure this is awful? Are we sure that when everybody has watched those Alabama Clemson national title games, have people hated them? Have people been like, Oh, great. Oh, it's Deshaun Watson against Nick Saban's defense again. Or have they been like, wow, these are two massively talented teams playing an awesome game. All right. Yeah. I just don't – yeah, I, I think four is kind of perfect because I don't think we've had a year yet where the team who should have won a national championship was just left out. And no, if I mean, you put eight a, teams in or six teams in, somebody's still got to beat Alabama and Clemson. So Yeah. Yeah, you got to beat them. I mean, it's like, again, I don't know what's – is the main complaint that Alabama and Clemson are too good? Is that really what the bottom complaint – when you boil it down to it, that's yeah, the it's main like, issue? Is Texas A&M's complaint that you didn't give we didn't give them enough chances to beat Alabama? Like they had, they played them on the field. They lost. Go home badly. <laughs> you lost badly. It's but I, I do think I, I am still a proponent of expansion. I think the benefits outweigh the the negatives or the washes. And I think and it's coming. I think we all agree it's coming. All right, that's our Wednesday Buckeye talk. The next one's going to be the picks and preview pod. We are going to do it 7 p.m. on Wednesday evening. With our tech subscribers, we'll make our picks. If people want to come in there and join us, again, you can sign up free right now. You can come join us live in the Zoom at 614-350-315. we got room for you. Everybody else who's listening who is a tech subscriber, we are going to do it 7 p.m. on Wednesday night. Go for about an hour. We'll make our picks for the game. We'll take any questions you have. We'll put it out to tech subscribers. Any other questions kind of wrapping up the week? We're done with the interviews. No interviews on Wednesday. And then Thursday morning is the traditional day before coach press conference where they Dabo and Ryan Day will virtually shake hands and virtually stand next to the trophy and ask, answer questions for 30 minutes. You're not going to get a lot of information there. Nathan, just for people who are wondering, just update us again. 
when people should learn about who will be available for this game for Ohio State? I did not check back today, but when I checked, um, whether it was yesterday or I think it was yesterday or Sunday, uh, was told that Ohio State would probably not do that until game day, which has been the practice here for the past month or so since they back to Thanksgiving when they first started running into this problem. So I would imagine it'll be like 10 a.m. game day morning. Okay, so look for that. That'll be texted out immediately as soon as it comes out, and it'll be on the site. We appreciate you guys listening. Drop the reviews at Apple Podcasts. Read cleveland.com slash OSU. Again, Stephen and Nathan, among other things, are doing these really interesting breakdowns of kind of the head-to-head matchups in this game. We have a Trey Sermon, James Skalski, the uh, Clemson linebacker, one that's out there already. Uh, we got – Stephen, you have the one for uh, Wednesday morning. Is that correct? I do. It'll be Harry Miller against Brian Brzee, and it's the overlook of the Ohio State's offensive line versus Clemson's talented defensive line. And then we have, what, a Sean Wade, Amari Rogers coming down the pike, and uh, Nathan, you got a Pete Werner, Travis Etienne, is that right? Yeah, and I think I'm looking forward to writing that one because I think it's an interesting one. It's it's a guy who both of them kind of seen as their versatility being a strength, as we talked about before, and so how does that play out when, when these teams go head-to-head? And that's just a piece of what we're doing. A bunch of other stories. Steven's going to be doing some recruiting stuff about the comparisons. Nathan's got a big Justin Fields thing coming before the game. Make sure you're reading cleveland.com slash OSU. But for now, for Nathan and Steven, I'm Doug. And that was Buckeye Talk. <laughs>